You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson welcoming you to another to another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. Uh, I have a very special uh, returning guest here, Ed Simon, who's a, sort of a frequent friend of the show. Um, he's got himself a really wonderful publishing career. And just recently, he's published a really great um, article in Berfroy called A Gospel for the Left that came out on November 13th. And I highly recommend you go back and read this essay. Um, Because it really, I think, captures a lot of the intersections that we really like to go for in this show. And so I'm really grateful for Ed for coming back on the show to talk to us about this. Because I think it's going to connect to a lot of uh, our general concerns that we have on this this program. So, Ed, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Busy, but good. Yeah, you are busy these days. Uh, And on that note, I want to give you a chance to plug just as as this is released – your uh, your book has just come out, uh, and so you want to talk yes, a little bit about it? Sure, sure. I'd love to. Always an opportunity to shamelessly plug. <laughs> uh, it's something worth taking. Um, yeah, my book is called um, America and Other Fictions uh, on Radical Faith and Post-Religion. Sometimes I get those two qualities reversed in the subtitle, which is embarrassing since I made up the subtitle. <laughs> uh, but it is coming out from Zero Books, a uh, British radical publisher, it's an imprint of John Hunt Publications, uh, and it is out on the 30th in the United Kingdom, so I guess in like six or seven hours in the UK it'll be out, uh, and it is out December 1st uh, in the United States, so that'll be this Saturday that it's out. And I've heard from some people that they've already gotten their copies, so I, I don't know exactly how that works, but that's when Amazon is going to start shipping them out so amazon tells no, the publisher what to do now right yeah, yeah nothing 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 that seems more appropriate than your like you know radical press being dictated to by the <laughs> neoliberal behemoth of amazon.com and jeff bezos but absolutely it's well, reality well i'm going to get my copy when it comes out and i i'm begging you to come back on the show to talk about it again. oh i'd love to yeah, yeah absolutely yeah you're one of a long time friend of the show right from its very beginnings and so um i, I really appreciate you taking the time mm-hmm. uh to talk to us about this really excellent Excellent article. Um, like uh, the listener will have to pardon me because there's uh, a lot of intersections between a number of episodes of this show and the Christian Humanist Network in general that I'll probably be referencing. So if it sounds like I'm sort of pitching other episodes, I, I am because they are related uh, in very key ways. And so uh, one personal relation I have to this is. I, actually, I think it was something that you wrote about the literature of Pittsburgh uh, a couple of few years ago, Ed, that okay. um, inspired me to actually create a class here at Mount Aloysius College. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that's and, very cool. And I'm teaching that again in the spring. Um, that class yeah. went really well, and I actually used a lot of your suggestions from your article very cool. um, in the first time. And, and so awesome. the second time, I actually think I'm going to add uh, some of these Va- Max Venko uh, murals that you're talking oh, yeah, about from, yeah. from Midvale. And I think um, you, want to, you open the essay by talking about this kind of these radical almost like uh uh like south american like radicalist yeah. style um um murals in churches that are kind of sure. both religious and leftist and you want to talk about how that relates to your article 
Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the ways, and some of this gets into kind of the nuts and bolts of composition itself, which I never know how interested people necessarily are in how the bologna is made, but I am. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I had, I had pitched this idea for an article that would talk about kind of um, left wing manifestations of religiousness of faith. And so I was um, trying to think of uh, a narrative hook or a narrative pitch to begin the piece with. Uh, and, you know, I'm a native Pittsburgher proud son of the city who kind of goes on about that all the time. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, I don't currently live in Pittsburgh, but I was back in Pittsburgh for the baptism of a friend's baby. Uh, and I was in the lobby of um, St. Paul's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue, if you're familiar with it in, in Oakland. It's like the sort of diocesan cathedral for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Pittsburgh. And they had, um, you know, in the front where they have like bulletin boards where they put up all the sort of churchy stuff that you put up in a place like that. They had uh, a flyer that was talking about an art history tour uh, of this church in Millvale, which is this appropriately enough, a small mill town right across the Allegheny River from the actual city of Pittsburgh. But it's like a small town, independent in its own right. Uh, and there's a Croatian Catholic church there. Um, where the murals had been painted by a Croatian painter named Maximilian Vanko uh, in the 1930s. And he was a very prominent um, sort of, I guess you'd call him a social realist artist. Mm -hmm. My art history is a little uh, rusty right now, but he was known for doing murals in the style of like Diego Rivera. That's great, what it looks like to me uh, too. Yeah, 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 great sort of uh, Marxist Communist Party member painter who uh, painted a lot of murals in Mexico and then incongruously also painted uh, Rockefeller openings <laughs> in New York City. Um, but Vanko uh, paints these like really remarkable murals where uh, they're all scenes uh, from sort of like you know the, the traditional stations of the cross, uh, but they're modernized basically. Um, so that, you know, when Christ is uh, on the cross and his side is being pierced by a centurion spear, uh, it's a doughboy who's bayoneting him, a, a World War One doughboy. Um, or when, you know, you have the Pieta and uh, the Virgin Mary's holding the, the corpse of Christ, you see the steel mills of the uh, valley in the background. Uh, and his titles for these murals are like, you know, very explicitly left wing. So it's something like, you know, the immigrant is crucified on the cross of capital or whatever. I don't yeah. know if that's an actual title, but just things like that. Um, so I was kind of using this as a frame by which to make my uh, larger argument that was kind of about how uh, theological language in particular and sort of scriptural narrative and um, the idiom of faith uh, is something that people on the left need to be conversant in again for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. And I, yeah, I would definitely want to get into the reasons for those reasons actually. And, and sure. la later on in the article, you talk about Clarence Jordan and the cotton patch gospel. And so it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a similar thing. It's sort of translating re the religious text. In this case, he translates the Bible in very kind of contemporary yeah. references and terms. And so um, later on you give other examples where um, there's a, a convergence of political activism from the left, particularly and religious language. And, and so that, that's a, it's a really uh, fascinating topic. It immediately 
um, draws parallels to our episode that I did with Nathan Gilmore about Oscar Romero. And there's there's a long tradition of this. And so go back into the archives of the, of the show and and you'll find other um, versions of this for sure. Um, But um, I also want to say on the subject of those murals, two things, Millvale, I've actually been there. I went to see Mm -hmm. uh, the band shovels and rope. Oh, Mr. Smalls over there. Mr. Smalls there. Yeah. Yeah, And uh, and it's a, it's a great, it's an old church that they've converted into a, a really cool theater. And, That's uh, a very Pittsburgh thing, I think, to convert old <laughs> churches into something vaguely profane. But, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. But uh, but it was it was wonderful. But um, also that that whole uh, era of the sort of industrial era of Pittsburgh um, mm-hmm. is really captured nicely in another book that I'll be teaching again in this Pittsburgh class. It's called Out of This Furnace um, oh, yeah, by yeah, Bell. And it, it's an immigrant mm-hmm. narrative that's also about the kind of... right? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and it's uh, basically about the immigrants coming here being kind of victimized by... Dale Carnegie or Dale Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie, who basically <laughs> ultimately Dale Carnegie, <laughs> yes, but who in this in this book might as well have yeah. horns and a pitchfork. He's uh, yeah. he's the, literally the devil in this book. But it's about the kind of development of the union, uh, and and it's a really um, as for, as far as immigrant stories go, it's a really mm-hmm. nicely told one. And so, uh, but it fits in nicely with uh, this imagery from Millvale. And so I'm totally going to try to find a way to work that into my class. But um, but on to the subject of your essay, Ed. The, um, the, the main argument, I think, centers around a failure of kind of technocratic liberal mm. keywords to actually communicate the goals of, of um of radical politics. And I guess it's yeah. maybe because liberals aren't necessarily radical, <laughs> but uh, I want your, I want your yeah, thoughts yeah, on, uh, on what is it about theological language that allows it to accomplish something that these uh, kind of keywords cannot. So I guess um, it's sort of a two pronged uh, approach to that, to answering that question, um, which is always the most tedious way to begin an answer. But um, I think that there's a real failure with um cultural studies keywords, um, you know, to draw the title of the famous Raymond Williams book that defines, which is a great book, by the way, but yes. defines a lot of those terms. Uh, it's funny for me. It's interesting for me as words like privilege and intersectionality uh, enter the sort of common vernacular because they're very useful words. They're good words and they do what they're supposed to do in a certain context. But what's been funny for me, uh, you know, is my, my academic background is I have a master's from Carnegie Mellon, which was uh, in cultural studies, uh, which was one of the um, first English departments to adopt a cultural studies sort of, uh, you know, way of structuring themselves as a program back in the early 1980s. So it's like this venerable um, sort of school that takes a, a lot from the Frankfurt School, takes a lot from the Birmingham School for Social Research. So like these are terms that I knew as critical terms well before kind of like the Tumblr left, yeah. uh, as Angela <laughs> Nagel calls them, uh, developed them into um, kind of uh, this, this identity politics. And I'm not speaking against identity politics per se, but when it became uh, sort of made mainstream through social media. And one of the things... Uh, there's two things that I think, another two things that I find to be problematic about cultural studies uh, language. The, the one is that uh, it can be severely anemic when talking about some issues of justice. And I find that oftentimes it is misused by people so that, you know, if you're taking something like Homi Baba's concept of hybridization, right, like that's an incredibly powerful and useful concept if you're doing cultural theory. When that then turns into a means of like, overly nitpicking about issues of 
cultural appropriation that may or may not have anything to actually do with the wider issue of justice. Right. I think that that is fundamentally alienating. So I know that there's like a stereotype of like, you know, kids at Oberlin or whatever complaining about California rolls being served in the cafeteria. Uh, but like that is a thing or things like that happen. And they're not that important in the grand scheme of things either way. Uh, but the right certainly loves to run that ball into the end zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that some people who are liberal, and this is a thing that I associate with liberals more than with the left, of course, uh, is that if people think that other folks who are not conversant with this terminology don't hear that stuff and kind of think, what the hell? Then they're, they're kidding themselves, right? You're not, and this is not an issue of like trying to convince people who you are irrevocably um, different from ideologically. I'm saying that most people who don't know this sort of language find the debate about like, you know, kids at Oberlin being upset about California rules in the cafeteria as being fundamentally alienating to them. And they're not wrong to think that way. Right. Yeah, right. The, the other thing I think that's problematic with the cultural studies uh, terminology is that uh, it's a terminology that you have to have a degree of education to understand. So uh, not that it can't be explained to people, certainly, but like it's a it's a language you become fluent or conversant in. So I find that the kind of um, gotcha politics of ripping people apart for not knowing words that, of course, they wouldn't necessarily know because they don't have a degree in cultural studies is a fundamentally bad faith sort of argument to have. And it's not helpful. Uh, and just as an example of that, that I'll oftentimes see is uh, people who work in cultural studies understand that when we're talking about racism, we're talking about bigotry plus institutional power. That's what we're talking about with structural racism. The word as it is commonly used in most people's experience simply means bigotry or prejudice at a personal level. Yes. So there's a difference between how it's used in everyday speech and a difference with how it's used in a technical sociological sense. I think it's bad faith when people talk to somebody who doesn't have a background in the technical field and you tell them something like it is impossible for people of color to be racist because of this. And they go, but no, I I've met people who are bigoted or whatever, who are not white. And it's, it's sort of a bait and switch, I think, or an act in bad faith to pretend like you're speaking the words in the same way. And then to accuse somebody of something that they themselves might not necessarily think that they are doing. By all means, explain how the word should be used. But I think that there's um, there's something fundamentally disingenuous about that in that regard. So that's, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Uh, so I think that that's, that's one problem uh, with the, the cultural studies language is it's a kind of um, misuse uh, sometimes, right? And, yeah. and I think that it, it falters and it's not necessarily a particularly powerful vocabulary it's technocratic it's jargon right and jargon by its nature is not prophetic right it work it works in a different level and what it does is very good but it's fundamentally scientific in the broad sense of the word it's fundamentally positivist to a certain extent yeah so i think that if you're talking about issues of injustice um by all means use words like privilege i think that's a helpful word to use but if that's the only word that you use then at the level of trying to speak to people's actual concerns, you're going to falter. And then I also think at a critical or an analytical level, uh, it's problematic because it doesn't take into account the noumenal or the transcendent. And that's because, you know, I'm a thinker who in my own cracked idiosyncratic way takes theology very seriously. Right. So I think if you bracket that out, you have uh, an anemic uh, analysis. And of course, if somebody's like, 
a strict materialist, which I am not, or if they are strictly secular, which I am not, they're going to disagree with me on that. But that's that's my perspective on the um, utility and the necessity of using theological language in addition to cultural studies keywords. I couldn't agree more with uh, with everything you said. The um, the point particularly about this being an enclosed kind of language that's only mm-hmm. really fully understood by a very small portion of people. Um, it ends up working itself out on social media as a kind of shibboleth, right? You're just sort of mm-hmm. identifying people who are using words wrong. And on a, yeah. very, on a simple oh, yeah. level, I saw somebody call Jonathan Merritt out once on Twitter because he called it the Democrat party. Okay. And said, Oh, mm-hmm. you, what that means? That's a Republican, blah, blah, blah. You know? And, yeah, yeah. and I actually went, I would, my parents live in Ash Ohio. And on the uh-huh. sign of the Democratic Party headquarters, it says Democrat Party headquarters, right? And so uh-huh. <laughs> and so people, the real world like uses terms in very different ways, right? Than uh yeah, than, yeah. than academics do. And it's not to discount the way academics use these terms. They they have they serve a purpose, but it's not one that's going to translate and therefore do any good in the world, right? Um beyond that. And so um that that's one point I wanted to sort of um Reemphasize, and I want to also take this opportunity to make one of my plugs. Uh, there was a I think we did three episodes called Keywords, and I actually uh, mm-hmm. derived the term also from Raymond Williams, as you mentioned, uh, with uh, Derek Varn of, of Zero Books, actually. And so he, oh, he came cool. on the show a few times, and we he did a very nice uh, deep dive into the origins of some of these technocratic uh, jargon-driven um, terms that kind of get dumbed down. So if you're interested in that aspect, go back into the archives and find a, uh, a couple of those episodes that will give you some background on that. Um, but also I think that... Uh, I was going to save this for later, but it seems like a a nice place to talk about it now. Liberalism Mm -hmm. to me, uh, I I use the term shibboleth, like looking for, (laughs) you know, like, you know, dissidents in in the way they use language, right? People who are, Mm -hmm. who, who have some sort of moral failing. Liberalism to me depends in America right now. And maybe this is part of social media or whatnot, but it depends on a kind of moral ism that looks very operates very much to me like the evangelicalism I grew up in. You have people who are are sinners and who um, need to be sort of called out in that way. And the the kind of language that liberal and the kind of rhetorical approaches that liberals often use to have these debates resembles a religious, um, a dogmatic sort of uh, like uh, activity. And so what you're talking about is something different, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts on the way liberalism behaves as a religion, although it, it uses entirely secular language. I think I would agree with that completely. Uh, and what I would kind of um, say as a caveat is I tend to think that virtually every ideological system that we think of as secular at its core is in some way theological. I can buy so that. <laughs> I th- yeah. Like I think, I think the left is theological. I think the right is theological. I think neoconservatives are theological. I think it's all in some sense built on some sort of, um, edifice of an understanding of things that are ultimate or transcendent or whatever however we want to define theology but we can we can bracket that out i think the question is is what type of secularized theology are we talking about in particular and i think some of it gets to the differences between um liberalism and the left at least in the united states political context and i think that uh your sort of understanding that um American liberalism bears a lot of similarities to evangelical Protestantism. I think that's absolutely accurate. I mean, if you think about, and you know, if you, you can exchange certain terms, I mean, 
um, instead of being saved, one is woke, right? <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of like a parody term, but like I've seen people unironically use it too. Yes. Uh, and I think where you see that similarity with liberalism so much, American liberalism, and I think it makes sense because you're talking about a dominant Protestant culture. So American liberalism will be born out of that and will reflect a secularized version of that. Uh, and I, I've oftentimes said, and I don't mean to collapse evangelicalism into puritanism because they're obviously different things in many ways um but american liberalism is kind of like a secularized species of american puritanism Mm -hmm. and i'm not saying that to disparage either i love and respect the puritans a lot so like i'm not uh i'm not necessarily doing that just to to rip uh liberalism or puritanism down for that matter um but i i want to kind of um be clear about what we're talking about and what the similarities are there so i think when you talk about this policing of language it's very similar and it reminds me a lot to if you've ever read any of those uh like uh early modern early american puritan diaries or you know calvinist diaries in general where people like think about their thoughts and their thoughts about their thoughts and sin and it's a very like neurotic sort of um you know in catholicism we call it scrupulosity but it has to do more <laughs> with ritual with doing things whereas this is more like did i think a sinful thought did i do a sinful thing and it's so much about policing language right did i do the right thing did i say the right thing Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's very much i find it and i don't mean to uh reduce the differences between catholicism and protestantism to like a works versus faith soterology i know it's more complicated than that it very much seems to be about like your faith like what's in in your heart about things Mm -hmm. and for me personally and it might reflect my background or whatever uh i find that type of like liberalism to be fundamentally anemic because it's sort of like well i did a good thing by not having you know sushi in the cafeteria today so that's good but it doesn't actually do anything there's no works there it's not like did you agitate for the people who gave you that sushi to make a living wage you know what i mean so i I think that um uh it, it focuses far too much on the individual and the individual sense of whether they feel sinful or not or woke or not yeah uh and i think it's it's not about what you think or what you say or what your faith is so much as what you do in in my kind of um religious imagination i guess i agree and so to sort of make the analogy in the evangelicalism of my youth you gain whatever cred by not shopping or not renting videos from the video store that has last temptation of christ yeah Uh, yeah and in the liberalism of today you don't go to chick-fil-a because the uh the ceo doesn't agree with gay rights right and so um, sometimes i think like and just to push back a little with that too it's like i think that if you're talking about like where your money goes to that's a certain um that's a certain form of action in its own right but i so i I mean the chick-fil-a thing uh, which I've never had Chick-fil-A because I feel like if I if I had it, I would be like ruined. You know, it's the sort of thing they're like, or if I found that, you know, if I found out that like Chipotle funded Pol Pot, I'd be in like real trouble. Like, I don't know what I would do. I would face a moral quandary then. But no, I, I do think I get your point. I get your analogy. Exactly. I think is, um, you know, it's it's uh, saying certain things correctly or not like. I'm not going to watch um, a movie made by like Woody Allen or whatever. Right. Because yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, because if I do that reveals the sin within my soul. Right. And so it, exactly. It, yeah, yeah. It yeah. very much uh, resembles that. And there is a good argument or a good conversation, I think to be had about uh, consumer activism. Right. And I think yeah. that, uh, we'll bracket that for now, but, but uh, the larger point is there's a, there's a, a real parallel there. Um, and you kind of, at one point, I think you say, 
um, you prefer David Bentley Hart over Sam Harris. And I think it's related to this, right? Yeah. Uh, like, uh, so do you want to talk about what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, was that in this, in this piece? In the yeah, Gospel it was in this piece. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, David Bentley Hart, I think is a fascinating figure. I don't know if you saw, um, the thing that he posted on Facebook recently about his politics where He's, he kind of, he, he outed himself as a DSA member, I think. Yeah. 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 And I had always, because he's such a, I mean, you know, he's associated with radical orthodoxy and I think of him, you know, he hangs out with John Milbank and, and I think of him as being, um, pretty traditional, uh, when it comes to theology, at least, you know, compared to myself and I kind of, uh, and it may have just because I heard like rumors through the grapevine or whatever, I kind of associated him with a, like a weird kind of like, um, I believe he's Orthodox ca- uh, Christian himself, but a, a kind of a, like a Anglo Catholic high church T.S. Eliot style monarchical politics or something. <laughs> so when he was like, he's like, no, no, I'm a, I'm a democratic socialist of America. I was like, Oh, it's delightful. <laughs> I was like, cause I like him a lot. I mean, he's a fantastic writer. You know, he's an incredible scholar. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with him on, on theological issues, but apparently I agree with him on a lot of political <laughs> issues. Uh, whereas uh, I, I think, so here, you know, here's the thing that's interesting uh, is Hart is somebody for whom, um, somebody in the among mainstream liberals who is vehemently secular would see Hart as this like reactionary throwback because he's, he's religious. And there's this definitely a certain segment of the liberal commentariat who are just weirdly ignorant about religion and quite dismissive about it. Yeah. Whereas Sam Harris, Oh, what a, what a radical Sam Harris is. He's an atheist, <laughs> you know, like can you imagine anything more radical than atheism? And meanwhile, Sam Harris's politics are atrocious. I yeah. mean, he, on his uh, podcast, he entertains all manner of like, really reactionary, really racist, misogynist, Islamophobic ideas. So I would completely take uh, David Bentley Hart any day over Sam Harris, you know? And I think if like the reason you like Sam Harris over Hart is because Hart believes in like the literal resurrection of Christ. then I think those people need to like examine their own priorities and what bothers them, <laughs> you know, if that. Yes. And, and it's a good, um, analogy to describe why David Bentley Hart bringing theological language to political problems is preferable to someone who's a, a completely, you know, technocratic uh, sort of liberal version of the same kinds of ideas. Right. And so, yeah, um, yeah, I think that they kind of stand as sort of, um, oh, I guess emblematic of, of the way of the distinction you're trying to make here. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and I think when you look at someone like Sam Harris, uh, and, and I'm not, I want to pick on him too much, uh, but someone from this milieu of technocratic liberalism and the keyword driven uh, moralism that they employ in political discourse. Um, when you look at someone like that, that those kinds of keywords are very easily um, integrated and co-opted into capitalism, right? The, mm-hmm, the very mm-hmm. systems that oppress people can be intersectional. Um, and so you'll have a fem- female CEO who still, yeah, clo- yeah. who still closes the Lordstown plant uh, uh, for General Motors. Right. And so or what's the, who's the woman at Facebook there? Cheryl, Sandberg, Cheryl Sandberg. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. And so capitalism can make use of this like woke liberalism. And so that's, well, that's another sort of failure of it. Whereas, not, whereas religion is kind of indigestible, a, a bit more indigestible in capitalism. Yeah, yeah, and not—I mean—and I not to imply that religious language can't be appropriated or co-opted or do the opposite of what it's supposed to do, since the Absolutely. history of religion it, is it, that. But it has, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. But I, there's also a sense in which um, I think cultural studies keywords 
language can be tethered to the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And uh, the, the stand-up comedian Pat Oswald, I don't know if you're a fan or not. Oh, yeah. He has a, yeah, if you remember that one uh, uh, bit he has where he has kind of a, a an uneducated but very tolerant person who speaks about um, issues of race and sexuality in a politically incorrect way. But everything that he says is like about tolerance. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you have a kind of like Richard Spencer type weirdo who, uh, <laughs> who says atrociously racist things, but in this completely translated kind of cultural studies lingo. And he's like the first guy is the good guy. <laughs> like, you know, not that we want to encourage people to use like slurry language, but like slurs in and of itself uh, are not necessarily the issue. Yeah. Um, you know, and not that they should be ignored, but yeah, I think that uh, it's a bit that makes its point well. And also, especially since, you know, if you ever hear uh, Richard Spencer speak, and thankfully he speaks a lot less these days than he used to, <laughs> uh, he he sounds like uh, the Duke PhD student that he was. Mm-hmm. He uses the language really, really eerily well. Like he knows how people like you and I talk about things with that type of vocabulary. So I think just having that vocabulary is kind of irrelevant, you mm-hmm. know? Absolutely. Um, and so let's go to some of the, the, the counter examples of, of this uh, technocratic sort of language. Um, and so you bring up a few figures, um, one of which is James Cone. Um, mm. And I want to mm. kind of like use this as another opportunity to point the Christian humanist podcast, the flagship of our network uh, recently did a series on, on James Cone's books. And, mm. uh, and, and so that's, that's definitely worth checking out. And I also meant to mention that they uh, Christian humanist profiles, uh, David Bentley Hart has been on there uh, with, with Nathan. Oh, that's awesome. And so, um, but um, let's talk a little bit about James Cone and, and his um, contribution to sort of radical politics through theology. Sure. What do you think about that? <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, you know, I, I'll have to, I'll have to be clear that I'm not, you know, I'm not super familiar with Cone himself, other than you know being vaguely uh, conversant with like the kind of greatest hits of, of his career. But mm-hmm. I mean, certainly as a as a seminal figure, and he passed away recently, I think about six months ago or so. Yeah. Um, one of the most important sort of black liberation theology. I guess if you could say he's part of liberation theology or, or oh, sure, you know, specifically yeah. out of kind of that, that uh, African-American milieu of liberation theology. Uh, but one of the reason I use him in a gospel for the left is because I think his um, language of talking about the crucifixion as a, as a lynching, for example, um, is so powerful and in a really uh, intrinsic way is true, right? Mm-hmm. It might not, it might not be literally factual, but there is a profound sort of theopoetic truth in that. And I think there's a, a real power to that. And if you think about it that way, it uh, it elucidates a lot of our current kind of racial and political issues. But I've seen, um, you know, with what's going on at the border right now, uh, where you have uh, children who are being, you know, gassed by the U.S. government who are trying to seek asylum in the United States. Um, I think if you say, and, you know, I know there's something a little bit uh of a liberal Christian cliche about it, where you say, you know, uh, Jesus Christ's family were, were refugees. Uh, but there's also a real power in that. I think there's, that is more true than its opposite is true. Yeah. You know? And I think if you're at all uh, going to try and um, forge a political theology, James Cone uh, keeps you really profoundly honest with that. Um, and I, and I also use him to kind of talk about um, when I, when I do my reading of Clarence Jordan, 
which I kind of included also to make clear that I wasn't just, you know, I have the Vanco murals as kind of an example of, of Catholic uh, radical political theology. And I wanted Jordan to kind of speak for Protestant uh, radical political theology. Uh, but, you know, when he uses a, a racial, when he has um, the white, protestants in his translation his quote-unquote translation of the new testament and if the readers aren't familiar he like modernizes everything in the text so instead of having pharisees he has white protestants yeah uh, and they and they refer to the uh crucified uh lord using uh an anti-black racial slur and like that's shocking right yeah. that's a shocking thing to read it also i think gets to the uh truthful heart of what the gospels are speaking of in a manner that's uh, incredibly profound and powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And at one point you make the case as well, like you, instead of using privilege, uh, why mm. not talk about original sin, I think is the, yeah. is the analogy, right? And so using oh, yeah. this sort of theological language as politically active theologians have done, and, and you talk about Reverend Barber, uh, who's currently mm-hmm. reviving mm-hmm. Um, Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign. And yeah. um, as the, one of the reasons that it's effective is that, it's not in spite of its religious language, right? It, it's the religious language is what's driving it um, to be um, actually meaningful. And, and Absolutely. So, yeah. And so I think that that's a, that's a good lesson for the left, right? And it's where you will find, you know, people who are just sort of dogmatically opposed to religion and therefore want to um, materialize it out of the existence. Right. And so um, yeah. there is something that is lost in doing that. And so you're, article seems to be aimed at folks who may be dismissive of religious mm-hmm. language based on kind of ideological grounds. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think that that that's one sort of um, audience for it. I do want to claim, uh, ask you what you think about this. I'm not pushing back or anything, but sure. it does. It seems to me that a certain Christian reader might take some mm-hmm. offense because uh, mm-hmm. you also say whether God is real or not, mm-hmm. we should use this. So, and so is there a, um, oh, yeah, a danger? Yeah. I, do you feel like you need to defend this position against Christians who might accuse you of being a little insincere in your use of faith? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's a great question. I think, um, so there's a couple different things I think I need to, to bring to bear on that particular uh, aspect of things. When I bring up whether uh, God is real or not, I think, and I can completely understand how uh, a more orthodox lowercase o reader would read this as kind of a like liberal agnostic or atheist or secularist or whatever, talking about kind of like appropriating or commandeering religious language because it's convincing the people from like a strategic or electoral standpoint. I think the thing I should emphasize with that is uh, I would completely understand uh, people drawing sort of an offense at that as being like a cynical maneuver. Um, And I could see that people might think that that is what I'm saying, but I don't think that is. I don't think that's my position because I would not position myself personally uh, as being that kind of like uh, duplicitous secular person because I don't <laughs> consider myself I don't consider myself to be secular in that sense right mm-hmm. I think I think my own theological opinions um, which might complicate how people read the article but they're the the most I can describe them at as are kind of cracked right <laughs> like they're they're uh, they're weird I have weird theological opinions I mean I embrace um, very much a radical theological tradition that comes out of things like the the death of God movement um, Tom Althusser, the great uh, theologian of the death of God movement actually passed away last night I saw oh gosh um, oh. yeah but uh, it's sort of a very um, you know it's like a what 
not that I'm comparing myself to Spinoza because I am not Spinoza, <laughs> but you know, when, when Bertrand Russell said he's either an atheist or the most God intoxicated philosopher ever, that's sort of how, <laughs> how I feel on it. Like I'm not, I hold no truck with the Sam Harris's uh, or the Christopher Hitchens's or the, certainly the Richard Dawkins's of the world. So like, I, I just don't position myself as being, um, as being a secular thinker in that way. I just think I have a very, um, different apophatic approach to the divine that might not seem familiar to a lot of people who are more traditionally religious, but I don't think it's contradictory or contrary to Mm -hmm. those ways of being religious though. I can understand that because it is um, sort of uh, Jesuitically subtle and seems to dodge around a lot that people might see it as in bad faith. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it isn't bad faith, but there's still faith there. <laughs> you know what I'll say. <laughs> so that's that. That's the first part of that. The second thing is, is um, if I were just saying that religious language works because it convinces people, then I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. Number one, I don't necessarily know that people are always moved by religious language more than policy language. Some people are obviously, but what I think is most important about the theological language isn't its rhetorical efficacy in terms of the strategy of uh, swaying people towards your opinion. But I think it is analytically crucial if we're to understand these issues. Mm -hmm. So I think it's helpful if you're writing an editorial or giving a speech, if you want to have like a barn burner of a sermon as a political speech, then by all means, I think talking about injustice is a lot better than talking about privilege. Uh, But when it comes to the actual analysis of how we understand these things, I don't see, um, materialism necessarily as uh as always the most uh advantageous way to understand things and even even the absolutely most astute of marxist interpretations which i would associate with marxism i don't think can get to the real beating heart of what we're talking about quite as well as just a dabbling of theological language can do so if you take a look at something like, um, you know, climate change right now, right, where we are existentially on the sort of precipice of complete ecological collapse. If you understand the activities of uh, the CEOs and of the uh, oil companies that have brought us to this point, if you can only interpret that through an understanding that they do what benefits themselves first and foremost, you will come up short because what they are doing ultimately does not benefit themselves in the long run, right? Right. If you push us towards extinction, uh, you're talking about something that goes beyond mere rationality. And I think if you talk about them in terms of, um, of wealth or whatever, it's not as effective as if you talk of them in terms of avarice mm-hmm. and greed. Because you're talking about something that is uh, cannot be reduced to logic. It can't be reduced to reason. It can certainly be illuminated by those things. But you're talking about something that is fundamentally, um, I don't know if mysterious is the right word, except maybe in the more classical theological sense of it, right? You're talking about something... Um, that is different from the sort of normal realm to an extent. I don't know if I explained that well. But. You did. No, you did. And and I would not ever accuse you of being insincere. I think that. Oh what, yeah, no, no, I didn't. I didn't what, think you were. I just wanted to throw the question yeah. out there for those who might be suspicious of you. Um, but the uh, but at one point you talk about how the 
what I think you call it the secularization hypothesis has, <laughs> uh, has like uh, proven itself to not really be true, right? As much as we think that religion is about to exit the door, exit sage, right? Or whatever. Yeah. Um, it, it's just not happening, right? It, it looks differently, right? But we've already kind of talked about the way in which even secular political ideologies are in themselves not as secular as they think, right? <laughs> and so, Absolutely. Um, and so engaging with the reality of theology in the world, I think, is 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 not insincere, but it's it's just in fact it is effective. I think, and it's, yeah, it's the absolutely a, the best way. Or it's a vital way of getting at a, at a true analysis of the situation, right? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think all of human history hitherto has been the history of competing theological claims, whether they identify themselves as such or not, <laughs> uh, to an extent. I mean, um, yeah. I got that reference, by the way. Um, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the uh, um, and, and as you were talking earlier, um, I just I want to kind of wrap things up here. Um, sure. But uh, you'd mentioned uh, like some Jesuit uh, nature of this, right? And so it yeah. actually, this actually does remind me. And you mentioned him in the in the articles, Terry Eagleton. Um, oh yeah, yeah. It's a really terrific book called Reason, Faith, and Revolution. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic book. Um, and it's funny. And Terry Eagleton's a hilarious writer. And so it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it kind of quote unquote does theory, but it actually in a similar way takes uh, and Eagleton is a Marxist literary critic right um, but it takes yeah. religion very seriously um, and, and he actually has a great way of understanding the Bible as a radical um, document yeah. right and and so why give that up in your um, p- political activity um, and he actually when you talked about you know Richard Dawkins and mm-hmm. for Hitchens, he conflates them in mm-hmm. hilariously into a figure he calls Ditchkins, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, which is shorthand for him for this kind of new atheist kind of materialist that uh, that is totally not only inadequate in confronting capitalism, but ultimately I think for for people like Eagleton and and for me, uh, they're actually enabling it right uh, by, yeah, yeah. by by the materialism that they uh, are, are employing, and so um, yeah, so and I think that your your article. It is a great service to people on the left um, who there is an increasing openness. I, I, mm-hmm. I detect I in the, in the left in not liberalism, yeah. but in, in the left, there are many podcasts about Christianity and socialism. The, there's one, yeah. a big one that people listen to called the Magnificast, which is a great name <laughs> actually. So, um, but, uh, but there's a, there's a whole, there's a, a, a slew of people within the DSA, I think who are becoming open to sort of religious, um, appeals to uh, uh, to justice. And so I think that um, this is a really great resource for folks like that. But I think it's also uh, what the article that you've written is also a really good thing for Christians to think about uh, as a way of understanding their faith um, in radical ways that they may not have understood it before. And, th- yeah, go ahead. Well, I, th- I think you're absolutely right about um, the sort of new openness uh, to these kind of radical ideas. I mean, we're kind of living in like a uh, interestingly golden age of uh, Catholic socialist thought, yeah. I think. Yeah. Dorothy Day is like, big right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you've got Elizabeth Brunig at the Washington post, uh, Kaya Oaks, uh, Nathan Schneider. You've got these like very like left-wing politically uh, Catholic figures who are writing really interesting stuff about Catholic socialism. And my, my sense is you have similar things uh, among uh, evangelicals and more mainline Protestants, certainly as well. I think um, I love that uh, the Eagleton book and Eagleton stuff on religion is fantastic normally. And he, uh, 
he sort of holds his cards very close to his chest about what he actually like believes one way or the other, other than like, you know, you know, he's a committed Marxist, but he's a Marxist who knows the catechism. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, I mean, he actually did verso books does a sort of like primary texts and like the radical canon, uh, you know, so it's sort of like, you know, like a text by Gramsci with an introduction by whatever, that kind of thing. Sure. And uh, they have uh, they do the Gospels and the introduction is by uh, Terry Eagleton. And I just love the idea of like the Gospels. It's this like foundational left wing text because I mean, certainly the uh, the um, the politics that are in the, the Gospels are profoundly radical. Yeah. It's one of the things that Hart makes a point on is when he talks about like the economics and politics of the early Christians is much further to the left of like anything in, in American culture right now. I mean, it's profoundly countercultural. Uh, in terms of how it understands the relationship of human beings to the state and the property and, and family relations and everything else. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do think when you go back to Ditchkins, right. Yeah. Um, that uh, Richard Dawkins's politics are like smarmy conservative politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just like, he's like someone's racist uncle at the end of the day. <laughs> he's, there's nothing radical about him. And then I think that in Hitchens, as he became increasingly miserable as a, you know, and Hitchens could turn a phrase. I mean, he's a great writer in a lot of ways and he did a lot of admirable things in some ways. But I also think as he got kind of older and found, you know, this bizarre politics, it was sort of like, you know, Leon Trotsky would be all about the Iraq war or whatever (laughs) uh, his whole thing was. Uh, In addition to being depressing, you saw that like their atheism was basically like a secularized version of the mainstream Anglicanism of their youth. And that's Mm. a joke that I make in the piece where I say, uh, you know, there is no God, but he belongs to the church of England. (laughs) It's just, it's a way in which um, it's oftentimes very uh, racist, very colonial politics can be substantiated with this sort of faux radical atheism. So I feel like for any, 14 year old because that's about the intellectual level that the quote unquote new atheists operate at. Right. <laughs> Who's trying to, to piss off. If I, can I say that? Uh, go famous. ahead. Whatever. Oh, just blur, blur out who can, who wants to anger his or her parents. Uh, I find it depressing if they go to Richard Dawkins and that's what they think is radical when there's somebody like Oscar Romero, right? Yeah. Like that's your idea of radicalism. You know, the proverbial you is, is Richard Dawkins. This is like Tweety guy who uh, seems like he might like use racial slurs when the doors are closed. I'm not saying he does. Although his, his Twitter feed is sometimes on the edge. Uh, so it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the kind of like not being religious is radical. It's just like such an obvious fallacy. Um, and, and, you know, I, there's been no shortage of um, think pieces bemoaning the lack of intellectualism among the new atheists and my sense is that new atheism as a movement is kind of morbid at this point it seems like 10 years past its due date yeah and i suspect a lot of the people that kind of liked raising hackles with new atheism have perhaps moved on to even more pernicious internet ideologies um well yeah i think what it's morphed into is this quote-unquote intellectual dark web of people yeah, yeah, who, who, people who kind of that's, fashion yeah. themselves as quote-unquote free thinkers right and so yeah, yeah i think um, that's true and, and so it has this very kind of libertarian sort of bent mm-hmm. to it right and um and honestly i'm also i've got a little toe in conspiracy theory world too and a lot of those mm-hmm. folks are big into that stuff too right uh not to yeah. not to make any guilt by association claims but um but there, there is <laughs> there is there is some association 
information there. And so, um, but yeah, I, um, and I don't want to keep you too long. This was a really wonderful read. If you go to the website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com, you can find us on Facebook. I'd love it if everybody liked the Facebook page. Um, it's it's a, a fun place to have conversations with folks outside the uh, the context of the show itself. Uh, but I will put a link to the um, article that you wrote on uh, oh, thank you. Uh, on the on the on the show notes. And it's again, it's easy to find. It's at Burfroy. It's just a gospel for the left. Um, so you probably don't even need the uh, the link. Just Google that real quickly. And uh, and I think you'll you'll get a lot to think about. And also some wonderful images that um, are, are come mm. with the uh, the murals that you were talking about with the at the opening of the essay. So so Ed, I really do uh, thank you so oh, much. Thank for, you so much for joining us. Um, I'm going to get your book here as soon as it comes out and uh, and and have you back real soon to talk yeah, about, uh, about, your, about you. your new book. So um, everybody, thanks again to Ed Simon for joining us uh, on the Sectarian Review podcast. If you have any questions, if you want to shout back at us or uh, or uh, or uh, yell at Ed through me, uh, that would be uh, more than welcome. You know where to find us on uh, on Twitter and Facebook and uh, the show notes themselves. Um, always look forward to listening to uh, what my audience has to say. So anything you have to add to this conversation is more than welcome. Um, thanking Ed Simon for joining me once again. My name is Danny Anderson, and uh, have a great day.